Welcome, everyone, to the Australian Bitcoin Podcast. In this episode, you're listening to myself, Justin, and Jeremy from Hardblock. Today, we'll be discussing Bitcoin cold storage self-custody. But before we start, a quick word from our sponsor. The Australian Bitcoin Podcast is brought to you by hardblock.com.au. Hardblock is Australia's oldest Bitcoin-only exchange. They have no added fees and are optimized for dollar cost averaging. Sign up to Hardblock today using the discount link in the description below to receive free auto-send batched Bitcoin withdrawals for six months. All right, Jeremy, how's it going? Yeah, I'm pretty good. How are you? Pretty good too. Yeah. Just did a, uh, a news podcast. Now good to uh, do something instructional for people as well. Yeah, well, I've definitely learned a lot from you about how to do this. And so I think it's a great opportunity to teach everyone else this free service that anyone can use and uh, securely store their Bitcoin. Absolutely. Yeah. Why don't we, um, before we get into the instructional part, we just sort of cover some of the, the concepts. Um, Absolutely. Like why to do this. So we're talking about self-custody. Um, some people might even think like, why do I want a self-custody? Couldn't I just like keep it on the exchange or something like that? Yeah. I think any kind of hardcore Bitcoiner would say like, that's an atrocious idea. I want to have my own Bitcoin. I want to like hold my own keys. But, uh, you know, understanding why that is, is important. Um, I mean, one of the things for me is just like counterparty risk, like the general idea that if you give someone else your Bitcoin, you are trusting that they are not rehypothecating or say yes. lending that out to someone else. You're trusting that they're not investing that somewhere or you're trusting that there's no potential scam or that they could be compromised in some way. And it might seem outrageous that that can happen. Um, however, if you've been paying attention to the news recently, this is happening quite a lot. Um, in Australia, we had btc.com.au. They recently shut down. Yep. Uh, you've got, you know, internationally, places like BlockFi, Celsius and Voyager, um, as well as many others, you know, pausing their withdrawals, requiring bailouts, now going through bankruptcy processes. And what people are finding out is that what they thought was funds secured in those services is not actually secured at all. They might not actually ever get their, their Bitcoin back. Or if they do, they might get back a dollar amount quite smaller than what they initially put in. Yeah. And I mean, this isn't... Um, isolated to like Bitcoin or cryptocurrency exchanges either. We've seen um, bank runs recently in places like China, um, even potentially Canada, although it was never quite sure whether that was a bank run or just a conspiracy. But either way, there were deposits being frozen. Um, it's happened in Sri Lanka. It's happened in Russia. And this is just in the last six months. Um, if you look up something like bank runs on you know Wikipedia, you'll find that there's about six or seven a year, uh, which is quite a lot you know, internationally. So even money in a bank, which most people would think to be is secure and, and custodied appropriately, it's not necessarily their money. Um, if push comes to shove or there's a collapse or a, you know, a debt crisis or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And this has been happening throughout history. It's not crypto and <clears throat> no. even just bank runs. Like, you know, gold um, has been stored in vaults because it's in central um, repository because it's, it's more convenient. Mm. But then over time, people realize, oh, not everyone's taking the gold out. We'll print some tickets for this gold. And it's the same pattern has been playing out over and over and over. And the other thing with um, particularly Bitcoin is that if you put a lot in one place, it incentivizes people, possibly even employees of that company to figure out how to get some out. That's Whereas right. if it's decentralized over billions of people, each amount is relatively small uh, and it's the incentive is not there for hackers to try and target every single person. But if you put it all in you know, Gemini custody, Imagine how much they have under custody. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, supposedly it's best practice, but, you know, who's, who's designed that best practice? Employees. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And they can be compromised. Um, they could be they could be corrupted themselves. Yep. Yeah. I think, yeah, just the general idea of not your keys, not your coins. You know, don't trust, verify. Like these are sort of the, what are the words? Like the ethos of, of Bitcoin. 
And so it's good to to understand why that is and to, to try to adopt it. Absolutely. Because a lot of people think you need to have really complex security measures to protect yourself from, say, like an adversary or a hacker. All you need is to not be the low-hanging fruit. Yes. So the low-hanging fruit is the honeypots. It's like it's all sitting in a central server somewhere. It's all sitting in a central organization. Like that's the low-hanging fruit. You just don't want to be in there. Yeah. And generally speaking, you're going to be safe. Yeah. And then you look at that Solana hack that happened recently. That was um, seed phrases in a hot wallet. Yes. You know, as long as your seed phrase is not on the internet, mm. that's a, you know, you're not low-hanging fruit. That's true. I found it really interesting that they tried to blame seed phrases in the first place to say this is a <laughs> yeah. this is a problem with BIP39. Yeah. I think, hmm, even if you had very complicated private keys which were not BIP39, these developers were sending them to a centralized server and that's where they've gotten compromised from. So it had nothing to do with BIP39 no, or seed exactly. phrases. <clears throat> so people are probably then asking the question, well, if self-custody is a useful thing to do, like how do you go ahead and, and do that? So I would say like the optimum approach would be to try to use an air gap device in your process. So sometimes um, people refer to uh, hardware wallets as an air gap device, um, but maybe taking a step back to just define like what is an air gap device. Yes. The whole idea of an air gap basically means that there's only air <laughs> around <laughs> the device and it doesn't connect to anything else. So that device should have like no internet, no Bluetooth, no wireless, no near field contact or, or NFC. Um, it depends on how far down that definition you go. Some people will say um, you can connect it with a USB cable and that should still be air gapped if there's some sort of security within the device. Like hardware wallets have something called like a secure element, yep. which basically says even if you connect it to another device, the seed can never come out of the secure element. But I think if you're, you're taking it to the, the extent of the definition, you would say you don't want to be connecting it by US cable to, USB cable to anything. You don't want any connection to another device or the internet. It needs to be a, like a standalone um, device, essentially. And how, because some people might be thinking, well, how are you ever meant to communicate with that device? Yeah. How hardware wallets like cold card deal with this is that they um, allow you to insert like a micro SD card. You can then take information off of your hardware wallet with that micro SD card and then put that into your laptop or your computer or whatever it needs to go. And if you need information from your computer back to the hardware wallet, you do the same process as a micro SD card. I would consider that an air gap. Some people might even go to the extent of saying that's not an air gap because you're still transferring information between other devices and that could be corrupted or, or vulnerable in some ways. I would say that's relatively low risk. Um, so I guess what I'm saying here is that an air gap is no connection to another device, but it depends on how hardcore you want to go in yes. terms of where that definition ends. Yep. I'd say for the most part, as long as you're not connecting something via cable or via wireless or Bluetooth or NFC, and you're instead communicating with other devices via something like a USB stick or a micro SD card or just an SD card, I'd say you've got a pretty good air gap device. Some hardware wallets try to do this, but I, you can actually do this with just a proper like a laptop or a, or a phone or something that's dedicated to yeah. doing just this. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we shouldn't scare people who have hardware wallets that are connecting via USB. No. You know, that is pretty safe. What we want to go through today is, is an air gap method that is free, mm -hmm. which is really good if you're trying to DCA like a few bucks a week. You probably don't want to spend $100 on a cold card because yep. you could spend $100 on Bitcoin. Exactly. So, yeah. this is a way that you can do that. Um, for small amounts, or it can actually be quite effective uh, for long-term storage where you're not planning to access it for 20 or 30 years. You don't need to spend. It's another another um, 
use case for what we're going to go through. Definitely. Yep. And there is there is some trust models involved with using a hardware wallet, where if it's not completely open source, you're trusting that, say, the way that they generate the seed phrase for you is completely random and can't ever be um, predicted or calculated. Yep, um, or, of course, if you put your own seed phrase in there, you're still trusting the rest of the software and the device um, that the secure element is secure enough, etc. So, again, not trying to like fear monger because I think most of the hardware wallets out there are decent when I'm thinking of like the ones that we've often um, not recommended, but kind of said, we've had a look, um, this is what we use personally, things like cold card, um, things like Trezor wallet, uh, foundation devices is another good one. I know a lot of people use Ledger. I don't personally like Ledger, but at the same time, from their track record of the hardware wallet itself, it seems like it's secure enough. I don't know about their email servers yep. and everything <laughs> else, but like it sounds like their yep. hardware wallet is, is secure enough. So don't want to scare people away from hardware wallets, but this is a, you're right, a cheaper um, and more self-sovereign way of doing it, essentially. Yep. So I wanted to maybe talk about just briefly, like what's easiest and most secure for beginners, and then we can jump into maybe what I would probably classify as a bit of an intermediate or advanced step. Sure. But to be honest, once we go through the instructional part of it, hopefully it becomes you know easy enough for beginners as Definitely. well. So if you are a beginner and you think like, okay, I, I want this kind of air-gapped security protocol as a part of my like you know saving my Bitcoin. So the easiest thing to do, although we've just talked about hardware wallets, is to just buy a hardware wallet, follow their instructions, because most hardware wallets are set up in a way where they are trying to have some level of air gap or an equivalency. So I would say, generally speaking, buy one of those hardware wallets, perhaps that we've just mentioned, or try to find an equivalent through your own research. If you want to go an extra step to make it extra secure, is uh, try to actually link that hardware wallet with your own node. Because the other thing that people don't realize is when they're using a hardware wallet, if they're actually then connecting it to the internet, is it's often using whoever they've bought the hardware wallet from their node. Yes. So like if you have a ledger device and you use the ledger software wallet, it's connecting to the ledger node. Correct. Now you are able to connect that to your own node, even if you're using the ledger software. And even better, you might not even use a ledger software. You might use something like Sparrow or Electrum or a wallet that integrates with hardware wallets. So it's kind of an extra step. First step, buy a hardware wallet, follow the instructions. Next step, set up your own node and then use a non-centralized open source wallet software like Sparrow or Electrum. And that, I think, for beginners, will have you pretty much covered and secure enough to when you want to start to dabble in perhaps what we're going to talk about next. Yeah, although I would argue that what we're doing is not really that much more complicated. Um, and the great thing about it is you can just test it out because it's free. Yes. You could just do it, and we're going to show you how to do it. Um, send a small amount in, take it out again. You know, For the cost of a few dollars, I mean, uh, possibly less on, of um, Bitcoin transaction fees, you can actually test all this, all this out at home for yep. free with, with you know a, a basic computer. That's it. So why don't... I'll try to give a bit of a conceptual overview of what we're going to do, and then we'll just jump into the steps itself yeah, because I think sure. that'll just you know spur conversation. So we're going to set up on a air gap device, so a computer or a laptop that say doesn't have um, you know connections to other devices or the internet. We're going to then set up seed phrase, passphrase. So we're going to going to generate basically a bunch of receiving addresses belonging to um, a seed phrase that we create from scratch. And we're going to save that seed phrase. That way it's kept offline and, you know, that's cold storage. Um, but also we're going to then send Bitcoin to one of the receiving addresses that we generate and show how you can actually then spend from that in future. And so this is, I guess, the epitome of a, an air-gapped cold storage without needing a hardware wallet. Definitely. Now, there is um, video of, of what we're doing here if you do want to follow along because some of the stuff is a bit complicated, so that will be on YouTube. Um, 
yeah, so I think uh, this just like uh, this is my work computer, so it's not the full setup, and I'm not going to do the full air gapping. But I'll talk through each step yep. uh, where you need to do something different to me. Um, but yeah, so what we're going to do first is go to a website um, called incommon.io where he's got a. Uh, uh, he's built some software that you can download, which is open source to generate seed phrases and wallet um, details and so on. So you can just Google Ian Coleman BIP39 and it'll get you to this page that we're on here. I'll chuck it in the show notes as well so you can just click through. And the first thing you want to do, so this is my work laptop, which is connected to the internet, is scroll right down to the bottom and go download the, uh, the file. So it'll take you to GitHub. And it's got it here, the BIP39 is download HTML. So I'm just going to save that um, to my computer. Just put in downloads for now. Now, this is the step that I'm, I'm not going to change computers for this video, but I'll, I'll walk through the, some of the steps. So I've got this, this website now as an HTML file on my computer, so I can now run that without the internet. Mm -hmm. What you should do though is save it to a USB because you're going to put it uh, on a different operating system. In a different computer that's that's air-gapped, yeah. Yeah, yeah, in a different computer. So um, what I've done and what I would suggest is using a Linux distribution. It doesn't really matter which one as long as it has a browser installed already yeah. um, because you're going to need to open an HTML file. All you really need is a browser and a text editor. Um, so uh, get a um, Linux distribution on a USB and load a fresh distribution on the computer you're using. Ideally, it doesn't have any uh, Wi-Fi card or anything, but realistically, if you're using a fresh distribution, maybe you turn your modem off and you don't put the Wi-Fi password in, it won't have the internet. Exactly. So um, then... Just for anyone who's really advanced listening, that's wearing a tinfoil hat that could say, <laughs> well, it's possible that if you have Wi-Fi capability, someone could kind of imbue your computer with the network and then steal it. Look... It's definitely possible what we're talking about, like such a minuscule risk. So I just want to let everyone know we're aware that that's, that's the case. That's why we're saying air-gapped is best, no Wi-Fi card is best, but you can actually get by without it as well. Because yep. we're, we're talking about like spectrums here in terms of like threat models and, and what people are willing to go to the extent of. So Yeah, there's a difference between there. possible and probable. Yes, <laughs> indeed, exactly. And something occurring in the wild versus something being theoretically possible are two very, very different things, isn't it? Yeah, and so you just don't want it to be on a fret, on, like on your own computer because it might save, it will save things in different places. Exactly. Whereas yes. if you use a fresh distribution that you only, so you're not actually installing the distribution, you're just running it off the USB yep. and then um, do what we're going to do here, then um, none of that's being saved. Yeah. Okay, so you've got your, you've opened up a computer, you've got a, a Linux distribution on it. Now you want to take the USB where you've saved this HTML file and plug it into that computer so you can open the file. So that's basically where we are here. Um, just for the sake of it, I'll turn off my Wi-Fi um, just to show that this does work without the internet. Now we're going to go back to that same site, but which is this HTML file. So I'll just open that in Firefox. And you can see here the address is in my uh, computer. It's not a web address anymore. Yep. So now we're going to actually go through the process of um, setting up the, the wallet. So basically this button here, generate, that allows you to generate your seed words. Now it allows you to choose uh, even three. Um, would you suggest 24 words or what, what's your opinion on that? 12, 12 is considered to be more than secure enough. And I know that we're going to add a passphrase here yep. as well. So that would be well more than secure enough. But if you really want to go full on, then you can go 24 words. It just means more words to either try to remember, but also you're going to be recording them somewhere. So you're not just relying on your memory. Um, so either one, I, I would say 
kind of cryptographically, probabilistically speaking, 12 or 24 seed words is just fine, especially because you're with adding a passphrase. Yeah. Okay, well, let's go to 12 for now. If you do feel like going with 24, I think it was 24 allows you to deal with computers like 30 years from now or something. So, exactly. Yeah. You know, like for me, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, if you're doing with super, it's 30 years away, yeah. maybe 24 does make sense. And, and that's only if you have just the 12 words, yes. that statistic. So once you add a passphrase, you're adding like a whole other level of complexity yeah. because someone brute forcing it would need to know that you have a passphrase in the first place and not just guess your seed words, but then guess you have a passphrase and then guess what that passphrase is. So you're talking about you're protecting from computers probably hundreds of years from now. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. Well, let's stick with 12 now because it's easier. Yep. So now I'm going to press this generate button and it gives me my 12 words. Now, something that's important to know about these words, all of the words have been chosen so that if you put in the first four letters, there can only possibly be one word. Yep. Which is important if you're choosing a backup device. Um, the one I use, it's called the Elipel mnemonic. Mm -hmm. It only records four letters, which initially I was like, I don't understand why they've mm -hmm. done this way. But it's because this is so well designed, you only need the first four letters. Exactly. Yep. Sometimes people ask, like, why is there a word list that we're deriving these words from? Can't we just choose our own words? That there is actually a way of doing that, but that's really bad practice for a lot of reasons. Like some of these words on the word list, not some, sorry, all of these words on the word list are not confused with other words. So there might be inquiry but there won't be inquire or inquire with an I instead of an yes. E. So there'll be they're very specifically chosen words and they're not duplicates. They're not similar to other words. So you're right. You only need the first three or even four letters to then know exactly what the rest of the word is. Yep. So then right now we have a wallet. So we've just created a wallet, but with no passphrase. So the passphrase here is optional. And uh, this is the seed. And if I scroll down, I've got some addresses here, which we'll come back to in a minute, but just we have created a wallet. Mm -hmm. What we're going to do to make this much more secure is to put a passphrase in. Yep. So one of the great things about Bitcoin self-custody, unlike, say, a gold coin, is you can put um, your seed phrase and then a passphrase and store them separately. That way, if one person discovers one of those two things, they can't actually take your Bitcoin. Exactly. Whereas if you had a gold coin, and you, well, like you could split it in half. But if one person discovered half, they could take that half. That's right. Yep. So I think the passphrase is an amazing uh, thing that you can add for an extra level of security. But you have to be very careful with it. And I'll show you what I mean. So we'll just put in um, just the word passphrase. And you'll notice that the seed has completely changed from where it was before. Mm. But let's just make it a capital P with passphrase and watch what the seed does. So it currently ends with 7737. Now it can, it's a completely different, um, completely different seed. That's right. So the words are actually quite... Um, there's some kind of flex there, I suppose. Yeah. Like if you write out D, it'll tell you it's outdoor and then you put a space. That's right. That's, you know, quite flexible. The passphrase is not. Mm. It has to be exact, like a space or a capital letter must be exact character to character. So when you are writing this down and recording it, uh, if you do use a passphrase, just make sure you record it perfectly. Perfectly. Any spaces, any symbols, any upper or lower case, any numbers need to be very, very clear of what they are because anything different would generate an entirely new wallet essentially yeah now one thing you could do is take another set of 12 words like run this again yeah and make that your passphrase um in this instance i'm just going to leave it like this um but you could do that and that way you can back up your passphrase and just know that they're, they're meant to look like this but whatever you do just make sure you know that it has to be space perfect character perfect everything perfect in the passphrase exactly and, and to doubly clarify something which i know does get confusing sometimes is that your wallet is now derived from the combination of your mnemonic seed and your passphrase together. So if you forget your passphrase, your wallet 
is essentially gone unless you can guess it again. You can't just then input the original mnemonic 12 seed words and somehow derive like part of your wallet or something. It doesn't work that way. Like your wallet is derived from the combination of those two things. So they're both as important as each other. And actually it's most important to have them together essentially. So now what you want to do, so remember you're on a computer at home with no internet, is you want to record this offline. Mm -hmm. So the best practice is some sort of metal backup device. Yep. But if you've got another method, uh, as long as you're comfortable with it, um, so you record your 12 words, record your passphrase exactly, and then think about how you're going to store all that and pass it on to your kids and so on. So what I'm just going to do is open up um, a text editor. Very low tech. Um, just for the purpose of what we're doing now, because we do want to be able to restore this later. Oops. There we go. And the passphrase you'll remember was passphrase. Okay. So now a couple of things to, to look at here. Um, a lot of the um, fields, if you hover over, you get a QR code, mm -hmm. which is really cool because um, that allows you to easily transfer this data. Um, but we, so the, the seed phrase and the passphrase, you're going to record offline and that will never go into another computer until you want to spend it, which is a long time away. But we do want to be able to send Bitcoin into this wallet. Mm. So we'll need some addresses. So we're going to scroll down to the bottom and we're going to do something um, a bit technical here is we're going to choose the derivation path, which is basically kind of like which version of the addresses. So yep. the more modern ones, you can use these older ones, but they have higher transaction fees because there's more data. So we're going to click on BIP84. Um, which is going to give you the more modern um, address that you might recognize, starting with BC1Q. Um, just out of curiosity, do you know why it's not BP141, but BIT141? What do you mean by that? Why, why do we not click on the most modern one? Like, why does that show as three? I'm putting you on the spot here, but... Yeah, I'm, I'm not totally sure. Oh, to be I honest. found something that Justin didn't know yeah, about Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, you, you could click on the spec. You could click on the BIP141 spec. That's right. Um, we can, yeah, it's uh, the first time we've asked Justin a question and didn't know the answer. So that's, that's, right. <laughs> that's a good thing. I, I was actually just going to say for the derivation path, if you want like a good conceptual way of understanding it, your mnemonic and your passphrase is like your seed of a tree. Your addresses are the leaves mm -hmm. on the branches of the tree. And the derivation path is like the stem's and the branches that lead to that receiving address. So if you change the derivation path, you still have the same seed, but you'll derive completely different leaves on the tree, right. completely different you know, addresses on the tree. And the derivation path is not just the, the BIP that it relates to, but it's also like, you see down on the page where you've got uh, the BIP32 derivation path, it's yep. got this M84, the 84 is the BIP that it relates to, but then you've got this 000, which is actually things like, what coin is it? What account is it from? Is it? meant to be for change or just a receiving address. Right. So they all have meaning. So if you change any of those numbers, it'll actually generate completely new receiving addresses. It's like it's generating the same seed, but then it's actually creating different stems and branches that lead to different leaves on the tree. I, I found that very useful as a concept, like yeah, a visual way to think of it. That makes sense. And actually, it standardized this, this um, derivation path, which is why everyone uses the same one. So wallets know where to look because it's infinite otherwise. If you create your own derivation path, put it into a standard wallet, it might say, this wallet has no Bitcoin. It's because it's checking the standardized um, branches and stems of that tree and saying, it doesn't look like there's any Bitcoin here. But if you put in your very specific derivation path that you put in custom, which you shouldn't do, um, then it will find it. Yeah. So you always want to use the standardized ones because it's like an infinite amount that you could actually generate from there. Yeah, that's that's a good way of explaining it. And I didn't, hadn't appreciated the subtlety there. I think one thing that is important to point out is this 
site does have a lot of very complicated things you can do. So mm. we're just going through the basic functionality. But if you do want to go into that sort of detail, it's actually all here. Um, I'll just go through. So there's a, a thing called an extended public key. You might have heard it called an XPub, mm -hmm. but there is actually a YPub and a ZPub, which is confusing. But basically, that is what you can do to create a watch-only wallet, which we're going to do, um, which basically is able to let the wallet uh, generate every possible public address. That's right. Um, but not private key. Exactly. So yeah. it can't spend it. And just to clarify, a ZPub is an XPub or an extended public key. The reason that the initial letter changes from YXZ um, is just based on which BIP does it relate to. So BIP84 would be ZPub, BIP49 would be YPub, and BIP44 would be XPub. But technically, they're all XPubs because they're extended public keys, if that makes sense. Just in case it's confusing, it's just it just relates to what addresses are you deriving legacy compatibility or segwit and uh, we're, we're we're driving segwit addresses because that's bit 84 what we're a part of okay well there you go okay so we're going to need and we'll come back and, and get this done we're going to need the public key and the derivation path for what we're going to do later mm -hmm. but we'll also just have a look at the addresses um and it's possible that you only want one address so you could just if it's you know super where you're not can't be private you might just grab one address um and then put your the super um, funds into that one address, uh, in which case you just copy this address here. Uh, and if you ho hover over, it will actually, um, if I, sorry, if I click on it, it'll show me a QR code, which I'm going to use in a moment. You can download, that, download all of this as a CSV, but something to be very careful of, this file here has the address, the public key, and also the private key for each public uh, address. Mm -hmm. So the private key for the address can spend the Bitcoin on that address. Correct. Whereas the master private key can spend the Bitcoin on any address. Correct. So don't download this CSV and put it somewhere because it's got all the private keys of each address. Exactly. It's very insecure. Yep. So either copy the um, the public key, which we're going to do later, or just the individual um, public addresses. Don't just take the whole CSV because it's more convenient. So what I'm going to do now, because it'll be make it more interesting later when we uh, look at this wallet on um, on our other wallet. Is just to send a little bit of Bitcoin into um, into this wallet that we've just made. Remember, we're offline currently, so my computer's the Wi-Fi is off. It's not a perfect eight-gap computer, but the Wi-Fi is off. Yep. I'm going to send some Bitcoin just using my Phoenix phone wallet. So I'm currently scanning, which you can't see because it's we don't have a camera on me. But I'm currently scanning that QR code with my phone, and I'm just going to send in. 10,001 sats, which is basically the minimum on Phoenix. Um, and I might get Justin to finish that off for me because he's thinking about it for a while oh, yep. uh, while I do the, the rest of this. So the next steps we want to take um, is to record some of this data back onto that USB. Now, I'm not doing it um, specifically on a USB, but I'm just going to copy this data. So I'm going to copy this first address here, which I've just scanned and should have 10,000 sats on it in a few minutes. Um, and I'm going to make, so I've copied that address. And I'm also going to copy the extended public key and save it into my uh, text file. So this text file, we now need to transfer that information back to our um, internet-enabled computer, the one that's going to have our watch wallet on it. You will notice that I've got the seed in here. Um, don't copy what I'm doing. I'm just doing that because uh, I have no other um, 
I'm not backing this up because I'm, it's, not a, it's not a proper wallet. Um, so just make sure you you know the difference. So you've got here, you've got your seed words and your passphrase. Those you keep offline uh, in ideally in metal. And separately as well, ideally. That way, if someone gets your seed words, they don't have your passphrase and vice versa. So I keep them in maybe exactly, different locations yeah. or store them separately, essentially. Yep. And then I'm saving a public uh, one address, also the entire public uh, Z or the Z pub here and the derivation path. So I'm just going to save that onto my... Um, text file onto my desktop and we're saving one address as an example as well whereas if this was a wallet that you expected to send multiple lots of funds into over time you might want to get more than one address you might want to get five or ten or, or twenty i mean get as many as you want but just know which ones yeah. yeah so if you only want a couple you could just take those two if you feel like you're going to need 20 or 100 you'd probably just take the extended public key true yeah. so the important thing to understand is <clears throat> any bitcoin proper bitcoin wallet can recreate these exact addresses with the information we have. Yep, that's right. Um, they just can't spend them. Correct. Okay, so now I'm just going to minimize this. Um, just minimize everything for now. So now what you've done is you've, you remember we're in this Linux distribution that's running off a of USB and we're going to shut this down. So that record of, the, um, of this happening is gone, but we've got this uh, text file which is on a USB um, which we can then take over to our other computer or the same computer if you want. Yep. So I'm going to reconnect back to the internet. And if you want a, if you want a really, really, really secure way of doing this, consider using Tails OS because Tails OS actually just it is Linux and it uh, runs just off of your random access memory, your RAM memory. So once you shut the computer down, it's considered to be completely amnesic. So it's uh, after, if you know anything about RAM, once you shut down the computer, it has no electricity, it disperses all of the voltage in the next one minute. And therefore, if anyone were to say, get access to that computer, there is literally no record of what happened when you were using Tails OS. Whereas theoretically, other Linux distributions may have say like keystrokes recorded somewhere <laughs> yeah, right. um, or some sort of data that's, that's retrievable after you've say even you know wiped the computer and, and uninstalled the Linux distribution or something like that, so don't think that's too important for what most people are doing. But if you really want to go the full level of extent to feel like in you know, a super secret agent, I would say use Tails, Tails. OS. Well, and, Tails didn't have Firefox; it had Tor. Correct. And I, yeah. I actually tried it. I wasn't able to open this HTML file. There is an unsafe browser there as well. That is you there? Can, oh, okay, you so got to learn yeah. for that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, ideally, yeah, Tails is probably best practice. Okay, so now what we're going to do um, is try and create a watch-only uh, wallet using the extended public key. So probably the best two wallets for this are Sparrow or Electrum. Yep. Um, the version I have here <clears throat> is just Sparrow connected, which will connect to, um, to um, a public server. Um, best practice is obviously to set up your node, but we wanted to show you something that is um, you know, ready to get up and running pretty quickly. So I'm going to create a new wallet here, and I'll just call it, um, I don't know, Ian Coleman. Create the wallet. Now I'm going to go XPUB watch only wallet. And now I've got to put in the XPUB and the derivation key. So I saved those before, so I'll put in my derivation path. I'm just going to copy and paste that there. And I'll put in the XPUB. And I'll apply that. I'm not going to put a password on. You could do that. That password is only for Sparrow. It's not a passphrase. That's right. It would be confusing. Um, so I'll go no password. 
Although if you do have a passphrase, it will be quite clear about saying this is different to a password. It's nice the instructions they have, but you're not entering seed words and passphrases into it. So you wouldn't you wouldn't get that prompt. But if you ever did, it'll be quite clear about this is a password for the wallet. And when I ask you for the passphrase, it'll have like a little error, not error message, but a little exclamation mark that says this is different to the password that you just entered. So at least if you do ever restore a wallet with Sparrow, it kind of guides you through that process a little bit more. Now, what you can also do, which I recommend, is click on this advanced button down here and put in a birth date. Um, so when the wallet has a has your details, it's looking through the entire blockchain to find transactions. But if you just created the wallet today, you may as well tell it not to bother looking um, through the entire blockchain. So I'll just make the birth date yesterday, close that. And now what I like about Sparrow is you can see down the bottom right-hand corner, this button here tells you when you're online or not. So I'm now going to put this online and we will see if this works. It's always fun doing things live. Um, so it's actually scanned that very fast. It was only a day worth of transactions. That's right. Well, we're still connecting. So we're still connecting to Tor on my uh, on my Phoenix wallet. But while we're doing that, um, let's just go through this wallet. So you can see this currently it's found no transactions. Uh, it's still actually loading. I but go, I might go back and try to send this again. Yeah, sure. I feel like. Um, it's loaded for too long now. What you can see here is all the receiving addresses. Now, if this has happened correctly, the first address should be the same as the first one we saved. So um, you only need to really look at the last four digits, uh, four characters, which is KD13, uh, or is that NL? Uh, yeah, L3. Let's see what we've saved. It is. It is this, it's always nice when things work. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So you can see that using that XPUB, we have um, generated the exact same set of addresses. Yep. So you can then use these addresses and this um, wallet to generate your public keys to send the Bitcoin into, That's knowing right. that this is a watch-only wallet. So you can open this with, with some comfort. Um, I am on an internet-connected computer, and ideally it would be connected to my Bitcoin node. Um, but that is one way of doing it. Exactly. For anyone who's not aware of why connecting to your own Bitcoin node is important in this instance is that if you connect to someone else's Bitcoin node, which is what we're doing for just the demonstration purposes, is that that node needs to have essentially your XPUB to then be able to know which receiving addresses belong to you. Therefore, knowing your XPUB, they know every receiving address you could ever generate from that account. So using someone else's node, you have to really either trust that person or ideally you do just run your own node. So just to clarify that in case anyone's wondering what's the risk of just connecting to like a public Electrum server is that that server gets your XPUB essentially. So we're going to now show you another way to set up a watch wallet. Like if you only want to use um, one, uh, one or two addresses, for example, in this case, we're going to go with one. Um, I'm going to go and set up an Electrum wallet. So I've got Electrum here, which is one of the older um, wallet software. And I'm going to set up a wallet and I'll call it just AirGap for now. We go next. Um, here we go. What kind of wallet do you want to create? If I go standard wallet, it's going to give me a whole new set of words, which I don't want to do. So I'm going to go import Bitcoin addresses or private keys. Next. And then here I can put my addresses in. So remember I saved that one address, the first address. I'm going to paste that in here and go next. Do I want a password? I won't uh, for this occasion. So I'll go next. Uh, and it tells me here, this wallet is watching only exactly what I want. And okay. Now... I don't actually remember if you can put the birth date in Electrum. Do you know? It does all it I'm matters. Just, to be honest, I don't use Electrum a whole lot, Neither yeah. do I. But it, it makes it easy to put in one um, 
one address if that's all you want to do. And, and generally, if it's running on an Electrum server, which is what we're connecting to, it won't matter too much. Like that scanning process will happen very, very quickly. Whereas if you're just connecting to Bitcoin Core, which indexes the addresses very differently in a very like slow way, that's when putting in the date is going to be really important. Um, I'd say always put in the date if you're not really sure kind of exactly what you're doing. But if you're yep. connecting to an Electrum server, the date part doesn't matter too much right. because the Electrum server has already indexed all the potential UTXOs and receiving addresses and kind of knows. So as soon as you say, hey, I want to query this receiving address, it says, oh, we've already got that in the list. It has this much Bitcoin. Whereas if you go to Bitcoin Core and say, I want to I want to check this receiving address, it'll go back and check every receiving address that exists and then try to like yeah, find it. So it's okay. basically like they're indexed in a very different way. Okay. Electrum server is indexed in a very efficient way where it should be able to right. like give okay. you the address response very quickly. Well, it's telling me my balance is zero. It's still connecting still to connecting I to don't, uh, I don't, yeah. Well, how about we just um, try that one again? So what I'll do is I'll go back to my Ian Coleman, click on the address, not a great ad for Phoenix. I've, well, I've pasted it. Uh, sorry, I've copied it. So you can even just go paste from clipboard. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, it might even be worth like closing Phoenix and re reopening it. Maybe yeah, it's going to reconnect do. to nodes. All right, so it's just restarting and it, it starts tour. Okay, so I'll scan the QR code. It does still say connecting to peer. Oh no, now it's, it's connected. Nice. Yeah, I think just turning it off and on again is usually what fixes it. It's amazing how often that is just the solution. Um, prepare transaction. and pay. All right, so that should be in the mempool. So let's see what happens in uh, wallets. I feel like part of any kind of Bitcoin software is things not working the first time. Yeah, no, it's found it. No, no, there you go. There we go. So now I've got 11,000 sats in my wallet. Um, Sparrow's quite good at it. displays things in different. I just like to look at the UTXOs. And here I can see I've got my, I sent 11,000 sats just then uh, into that address, and that's where it is. Mm -hmm. um, what has Electrum found? Same thing. Same. It's worked. Great. Yep. Okay. So um, another way you can do it, if you don't want to um, bother setting up a watch wallet, you can just go to mempool.space. Um, if you're going to do that, you're probably best off um, doing it in the Tor browser, mm -hmm. um, you know, general Bitcoin practice is not to try and um, publicly announce the addresses that you have That's uh, right. and link them to your IP address, but you can load the Tor browser and even um, you click a button and you can log into the Onion site, mm -hmm. which is even more secure. So what I'm going to do is just um, get that address again, which I'll get from over here, and put it into mempool space. And so what you're doing now means that technically you wouldn't even need to have like Sparrow Wallet or Electrum Wallet. Like if someone wanted to just go then query that one address um, on a different computer without installing any kind of wallet software, they could do exactly what you've just done with just a web browser. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of different ways to query addresses. You just need access to a blockchain. I mean, you could do it strictly directly in your own Bitcoin Core node, like with that's the, right. the command line. If if that's if you've got that skill set, mm. 
Um, but we can see that our 11,000 sats are there. Um, so now we've done the watch part. Um, but the thing I think is really important is to have confidence that you can spend that Bitcoin. Yes. Because uh, if you're going to put your super money or, you know, and store it for 30 years, you want to know what's going to happen at the end. So we'll show you one um, pretty good way to do this. Um, is you can go to Sparrow and so I think one thing to, to remember here is you can recreate this uh, using the same 12 words and the same passphrase. You can then um, go back to your Ian Coleman site and get all this information again because you're going to need to to get the private key mm -hmm. when you want to spend it. So what we're going to do is actually just grab the private key relating to that address that has 11,000 sats in it. So I'm just going to copy that. And we can do something called sweeping the private key, which I learned about yesterday from Justin. Um, and I can go into Sparrow Wallet, go Tools, Sweep Private Key, paste the private key in there. And I'm going to have to change the script type to native SegWit, I'm thinking. That's correct, yep. Yep, and we've got ELHG. Is that the right address? No, KDL3. Sweep to... Uh, wait a second. Oh, I think I'm in the wrong wallet. So wait. So the the address there is correct, but then you're sweeping to. Yeah. So I think what I want to do. Where does that wallet come from? Where yeah, does that address a good, come that's from? That's a good point. So let's start again. I've got a wallet over here, which is just a a, a wallet that I've uh, created. This is a hot wallet yep. that I'm that I'm using right here. Um, so it has the private key in it. So I'm going to sweep um, some Bitcoin, this eleven thousand sats, into this hot wallet. So I'll start again. Go tools, sweep private key paste it in and now it's going to paste into um, an address in this hot wallet. So I've got to create transaction. Insufficient funds to spend. Let's try that again. There we go, that's better. Hmm. Again, nothing works the first time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so I'll go broadcast transaction. And you can see this has left my Ian Coleman wallet and it's arrived at my hard block wallet. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to spend that out in there, but now I've got that's in my wallet that's a hot wallet I can spend. That's right. And you haven't needed to put in your seed phrase or your pass phrase anywhere else. That's still kept offline in metal, essentially. All you've done is you've maybe entered it back into an air-gapped computer so you can get that private key. Yeah, I think this is a great method because, you, you know, it might be quite a big effort to secure the seed phrase and the passphrase. Like maybe you've got it in, maybe the passphrase is far away from your house. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and so you don't want to have to, you know, create and like compromise the entire wallet mm. in order to spend a little bit of it. Because yep. um, then you have to like create a new wallet and change your passphrase and your seed phrase, and everything, and put it back in the secure locations. Mm. Whereas here, let's say you've got ten UTXOs, you might just want to spend one. Yep. So if you put those, you know, do what we just did, get the pass uh, the private key for that address, you can just do the sweeping process. Um, I think what you can kind of see here is it's good to just do this a trial version with not much Bitcoin, definitely, because you know a couple of steps here that. Um, uh, I guess quite subtle mm. and so you become familiar with it. And especially if it doesn't work the first time, that can be very stressful when you're trying to recover funds. So you want to do this the first time when you're not relying on it so exactly. you can realize, okay, I've got time here. 
I can try this again or yep. I can seek some help. And then when you try it the second time, usually it works. So you turn it off and on again and then suddenly it works. You go, okay, this is fine. It's, you know, the, the theory matches with the practice. <laughs> and remember also, like, you might not be doing this for 20 years. Yes. Um, so you want to make sure that everything, what you think you're going to remember, make sure it's really clearly written down, especially about the passphrase, how Definitely. the passphrase works. The final thing I'm just going to show, uh, which I'm not going to go through the whole step, is how you would actually recreate the whole wallet. Mm -hmm. So we can just do a new wallet. Um, recreate, call it that, create wallet. So now I'm going to do um, new software wallet and use, in this case, we did 20, 12 words. Mm -hmm. You would put in your words here and then your passphrase here. So what what's really good is you only need to put in small, like the first word is outdoor. Once I put in four characters, it tells me the word. So you'd put in your 12 words, put in your passphrase, uh, and then basically follow the rest of the instructions. That's right. You from click there. that create key store and then you have a wallet. Or so, that wallet again. Yeah. So then you'd have access to send every um, from any UTXO. So, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. I, like, as I said, I think it's really worth um, doing this a few times. You can even do it on the test Bitcoin network if you want and get yep. some test Bitcoin from one of those faucets um, if you don't want to spend real Bitcoin. Um, you're not really spending it, you're just spending the transaction fees. If you're doing it with a low fee, um, it's really not going to cost you a lot, maybe exactly. you know, 50 cents or something of transaction cents fees. Learn it at a, at a very, what I would say is practical and probably relevant level to beyond the theory. And you remember it so much better when the time comes to actually use it again like that. Definitely. And if you think you're saving, you know, $100 plus on a hardware wallet, a few cents on a transaction fee just to test this out is, is really good. That's right. And I would argue that you'd, you'd need to really go through the whole process with a hardware wallet, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the spending and recovering to be confident with that as well. So you're probably best off doing it this way. Um, yeah, so I think this is a really powerful um, free option that you've got, which is great for if you want to save a small amount or if you just want to store it for like 10, 20 years and you don't want to, um, you don't want to worry about having, because, you know, like in 20 years, your, your ledger or your coal cart might have died. Yeah, exactly But right. your seed words in metal won't. True. I think it's just a good educational way of doing it as well. Like the Ian Coleman website, the fact that it'll show you, okay, from your mnemonic and your passphrase, this is the seed, like the the very original private key seed. And then here's how everything else is derived from that point in terms of like that extended public key, individual receiving addresses, their individual public key, their individual private key. Like that stuff is very confusing, even when you have it on the page. Yes. But it's even more confusing if you're using just like a ledger and it says, here's your receiving address. And you think, well, how? How's that come about? Yeah. It doesn't tell you anything about the derivation path or the BIP that it's using um, or the fact that there's a, you know, a private key that relates to that one address. Like it doesn't really give that information. And that, you know, they've done that on purpose. It's like you abstract away the complexity so people can kind of just get their feet wet with it. But if you want to learn a bit more about how all these things work behind the scenes, I think the Ian Coleman website is a really good way to get your head around it. And it's very powerful too because you get to have, you know, infinite amount of hardware wallets essentially. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's, just amazing to me is that you can generate a wallet offline, send Bitcoin to it and recover it. Mm. You know, like how amazing is the design of Bitcoin that Definitely. you can just do that? Yeah, it's, uh, I remember when I first got into, well, it was crypto back then rather than to specifically Bitcoin, but I always had the conceptualization that to have a receiving address work, you kind of, it needs to be online. Like you need to have your wallet come online for a moment so the internet can be like, oh, okay, this receiving address exists. So now you can send money to it, but it's just the receiving addresses are more or less like potential calculated addresses from like almost an infinite amount of <laughs> of seed words yep. and things that you can derive. And once you start to understand that, you, yeah, you can kind of do 
more or less everything offline, except when it comes to spending, of course, you've got to transact that somehow. Yeah, it's uh, it's an amazing piece of software. I mean, it's worth playing around with even if you don't need to, to store any Bitcoin just to learn Definitely. how it works. And for people that do use something like uh, just a hardware wallet or a ledger or whatever it might be, um, often if you're setting it up for the first time, the instruction is to uh, you know eventually delete that wallet and then reset it up again, just so you can make sure that you can restore everything yes. from the seed phrase and passphrase that you've got recorded on steel or whatever it might be. I think Ian Coleman, that website is actually just a good way to like cross check yes. to say like, okay, yeah. can I restore this in a different wallet? Because yeah. if I can restore what I just put into my ledger, again, with my ledger, that would make sense. But can I actually restore it in a totally separate wallet? If you have like a cold card, maybe you do that with that instead. But I think Ian Coleman, it's there, it's free, it's accessible, you know, it's secure. So it's just a good way to give you that peace of mind of knowing that I can restore this anywhere and it should generate everything as it has. Yes, yeah, and you can do that offline too. I mean, you can't check the address, the, the block, the Bitcoin in the addresses, but you can check the addresses are correct. True, that's yeah. right, yeah. That's a... Uh, probably a good place to, to leave it. I think um, so. I'll link to a guide around air-gapped devices that Armin the Palman put together because um, that explains a bit more about like, you know, how do you find an air-gapped device or how do you make one yourself? Um, as well as, yeah, the Ian Coleman website and anything else we've sort of like dabbled in but hasn't haven't explained like in a lot of detail, I'll, I'll try to check in the show notes as well. And if you've got any queries, please reach out to us. We're always happy to discuss this stuff. Otherwise, I think experiment, kind of get your feet wet. It's Definitely. the thing that actually makes it make sense the most and makes you feel very secure about your Bitcoin. For sure. Otherwise, thanks, Jeremy, again for your time. No worries. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time.